Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. And so what does change policies? It's stories. It's real life, human heartfelt stories that does this. What I learned is that evidence can inform policy, but stories will change policy. Stories are what will motivate action. Hello, and welcome to The Body Protest. In this podcast, we combine storytelling with science to better understand our relationship with our bodies. I'm Nadia Craddock and I'm a body image researcher. And I'm Honey Ross and I'm a writer. This podcast is brought to you by The Pink Protest. Three, two, one. Hi, Hi body protesters. protesters. <laughs> Every time. It makes me laugh. Hi, Honey. Hi, Nadia. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. The sun is out. The serotonin oh. is back. The serotonin is jumping through those neural <laughs> pathways. I am feeling alive. Yeah. I mean, it's it's all it's all on the up, isn't it? The the weather just changes everyone's mood. It's lovely. Also, it just feels like, oh, we made it. It marks the end of the long cold winter and that lockdown, and now we are out and free in the springtime. Still keeping a two meter distance and wearing masks, of course. Uh so Nadia, I think you should introduce our guest this week. Yes, let me. So we spoke with someone who is very special with me. She is, I would say, one of my biggest champions and she's just the most brilliant, brilliant person. I think I mentioned it whilst we're talking during our conversation, but she is a really big part of how I got into the work that I do. I met her almost seven years ago and it's through her that I met Philippa Deirdrix, who is a previous body protest guest and who I have been working with ever since. So we speak with, drumroll, Professor Bryn Austin, the director of Harvard Striped, so the Strategic Training Initiative for the Prevention of Eating Disorders. We talk about eating disorders, the need to change the narrative on eating disorder stereotypes and how just naming the stereotypes serves to perpetuate them. And then on a more positive note, we talk about how policy change is created through the magic of combining storytelling and science. And we didn't actually cover this during our conversation, but before becoming an esteemed Harvard professor in public health, Bryn actually started her working career as a journalist. So she really embodies that storytelling and science combo. And then to give a bit more context on our conversation, a really key part of the work Bryn does at Harvard Striped is translating scientific research into policy action. So essentially using science and data to change the law to help prevent eating disorders. And so to give just one example, there's an act called Out of Kids' Hands, 
which is designed to protect children and young people from diet pills and muscle building supplements. So in a nutshell, these products are really poorly regulated and studies consistently show that they're really harmful. So a recent paper from the Harvard Stripe team led by Flora Orr found that compared to vitamins, weight loss products, so that's your diet pills, your fat busters, your skinny teas, etc., and muscle building supplements are nearly three times more likely to cause severe medical outcomes for young people, including hospitalization, disability, or even death. This act was supported by Jamila Jamil and her community platform, I Weigh. And so far, I believe the states of Massachusetts, New York and California have all introduced pieces of state legislation to protect young people and children from these harmful diet pills and muscle building supplements, primarily through restricting the sale of these products. We'll put the paper about the impact of weight loss and muscle building supplements in the Knowledge Noodles Google Drive for any of you who want to read up on it. Yeah, and so now let's hear from Bryn. Bryn, thank you so much for joining us on The Body Protest. It's so wonderful to have you on. It is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Nadia and Honey, for having me join you today. Awesome. So I have known you for the past six years, but for everyone who does not know you listening to this podcast, would you be able to give us a quick introduction? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I'm Bryn Austin. I'm faculty at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and at Boston Children's Hospital. I've been working in the field of public health for a couple of decades now with a focus on eating disorders prevention. And I'm the director, the founding director, and and very active with a research and training program, Striped, the strategic training initiative for the prevention of eating disorders, which we consider a public health incubator. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bryn, we are so excited to have you. Um, And you're obviously such an expert in your field. I'd love if you could share something you wish everybody knew about eating disorders. Yeah, something I wish everybody knew about eating disorders are that eating disorders are a serious condition, but they're also preventable and treatable. But for treatment to work, we need two things. One, we need people to have access to evidence-based care. And this is a real equity issue for us. And it's true in every country, in the US, in the UK, and globally, we don't have equitable access to evidence-based care for eating disorders. And that's something that we need to make a priority. The other thing I'd like people to know about eating disorders is that it's nobody's fault. To access care, we need people willing to seek care. We need others around them to support them to seek the care that they need. It's nobody's fault as much as the mental health stigma and eating disorder stigma are, uh, can make people feel ashamed, they can make people feel like it's their fault or it's their family's fault, none of that is helpful. What we need is for people to know it's not your fault. You can access care with the support of, of family, of friends, and we need people to be able to get the care they need so they can get back on a healthy path. Yeah, I think it's such important points and especially that people needing care and also that they deserve it because I think that's the other part, right, is that people often think, oh, well, I'm not sick enough. I don't deserve the care. Maybe I'll, you know, wait and wait until I get sicker. I think it's like that you need the care now and you deserve it. So I have the same wishes, Bryn, um, in terms of what everyone should know about eating disorders. So 
I really want us to talk about the recent economic costs of eating disorder report, which was a collaboration of Harvard Striped, so the Strategic Training Initiative for the Prevention of Eating Disorders, which you lead, as well as the Academy for Eating Disorders and Deloitte Access Economics. And I've actually just read the write-up published in the International Journal of Eating Disorders. And I mean, it's staggering to see it all together. And I would just love to, to hear you talk about it. So if you could tell us what the aim of the report was and and perhaps just share some of the top line findings. We were so pleased to get that report out. And, and it was a collaboration of a mm. year of worth of work of the of my program Striped with the Academy for Eating Disorders and Deloitte Access Economics. And we wanted to have that combination of a, the Eating Disorders Professional Society AED, mm. which globally is the the largest and with the furthest reach of any professional society in eating disorders, with my program, an academic-based research group, and then with Deloitte, they are based in the business sector, which is very important in the eating disorders care world, especially in the U.S., uh, and they have the technical expertise as economists to do this work. The key findings, really simple. Eating disorders are common, they are deadly, and they are expensive. For the, the, our study was based on the U.S., and we were following the lead of reports that had been done in the U.K. and Australia previously. So those were our inspirations. What we found in the U.S. is we can expect 30 million Americans will be affected by an eating disorder. They will be diagnosed or not diagnosed, mm-hmm. but they will develop an eating disorder in their lifetime. That's 30 million Americans will have an eating disorder in their lifetime. And that's nearly 9% of the population. We know that eating disorders affect all genders, all race, ethnicity groups, all sexual orientation groups, ages, Mm -hmm. and body sizes are affected by eating disorders. Eating disorders are deadly, deadly, uh, among the most deadly of any mental health condition. Uh, We know that over 10,000 people in the U.S. die as the direct result of an eating disorder. These are people's Parents, mothers, fathers, loved ones, children, every 52 minutes, somebody dies from an eating disorder in the U.S. from these preventable and treatable conditions. And we know now how expensive eating disorders are for our society, for our economy, and for families. We estimate that each year, eating disorders cost the U.S. economy $65 billion, and that's billion with a Mm. B. And much of that cost is due to uh, people not being able to work, missing work, families having to miss work to care for a loved one. We know that families, loved ones in the U.S. spend an average six full-time weeks of unpaid informal care caring for a loved one with an eating disorder each year. And this is because we don't have the access to care that we need to get people identified early into treatment and to provide them with the kind of care they need so that families are not so harshly impacted by the paying for medical Mm -hmm. care out of pocket uh, and the other costs that individuals and families have to bear. Hearing the numbers like that, it just is chilling. Is there anything that particularly surprised you about your findings? Well, I, I, I think that a couple of surprising pieces that came out of the research that even though uh, as a field, the eating disorders field has focused the most on anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, 
which have very large impacts on quality of life and physical and mental health care, because those conditions affect a smaller number of people, they don't have the largest of the impact on the economy. So thinking about societal impact, it's actually binge eating disorder and OSFED or other feeding and eating disorder, which are far more common, have the largest hit on the economy. And they especially are uh, very unlikely to be identified with, uh, to be diagnosed or to get people into treatment compared to other conditions. In terms of the people having access to care, in the U.S., we know that people of color with eating disorders are half as likely to be able to access care, to be able to get into treatment and have their eating disorders treated. Um, this is another way that BIPOC individuals and their families are particularly bearing the burden. Why do you think specifically eating disorders aren't receiving the attention and funding they require? I long thought it's because we we hadn't done enough research. We hadn't or we hadn't gotten the research and our messages out to the world or to the media or to um, policymakers to tell them exactly what we found. Uh, we've known for a long time, and now with this latest report, we know even more about how common, how deadly, and how expensive eating disorders are. But, you know, I've come to think more recently that I don't think it's just that they don't know the truth that we're telling them. It's that what they have learned first about eating disorders is based entirely on stereotypes. The stereotypes about who's affected, what eating disorders mean, how they come about in people's lives. These stereotypes are false, they are widespread, and they are deadly. They're deadly because they're keeping people from accessing care. They're keeping government and other leaders from addressing the issues. But if we go directly to gatekeepers by just saying, nah, what you believe is not true, listen to us, we get nowhere with that. And it, and it makes me, it brings me back to a book I read a few years ago, Making It Stick, which is about how do you get your message out there around really, they may be really important health equity or social justice issues. How do you get it out there? You have to understand how beliefs come about and how beliefs can be replaced with other ones through persuasive communications. And if this may sound crass, but I think it all comes down to messaging. How are we messaging about eating disorders? If we try to go right head on against the lies that are out there, we're losing. We're losing the, the lies, the myths, the stereotypes are so strongly held. Just coming to people and saying, no, don't believe that is not moving us forward. I think what we need to do is take a step back, do what people have done in other movements and really understand where the beliefs are coming from, and how we can get a point of entry to change people's thinking about eating disorders so they will be moved to take action. And that's ultimately going to come down to having much more savvy and evidence-based messaging about how we talk about eating disorders. When I was growing up in a affluent area with a lot of skinny white friends, I was often told the narrative of this is only happening in this area. This is only happening exactly. to these people. Yeah. Because, and also there was a narrative pushed on kind of, well, it's because you guys are spoiled. Yes. And it's because you guys oh, don't oh, know what you real go. struggle yes. is. And, you, because, 
and and I and I just I remember being like I don't think that sounds right. No. <laughs> it's like I don't no. think you can put something. I, I you know I always as a young person knew it was systemic, mm. and I knew that it couldn't just be happening in my area. There was no way. I just want to make a note that I I'm actually afraid that repeating the stereotypes reinforces the stereotypes. If you've ever read the book, Think of an Elephant, it's one of, it's an early book. It's an incredible, it's a very short, it's like a booklet almost. It's a monograph. Don't Think of an Elephant is about communications theory uh, and how we understand concepts and how they get stuck. And then the much more recent book is Making It Stick, which is about how do we unstick things or how do we bypass where they're stuck. I think repeating the stereotypes actually reinforces them. People of color with eating disorders in the United States are half as likely to get access to treatment as white peers of the same age, same everything else. But it, it, but it, and so it's it's a double edged sword yes. of. I think it's so important to highlight the fact that it's like essentially we aren't being told these stories of people of color with eating disorders. That's not something that is being presented to us in the media, told you know through TV and film. And I think it's it's. Imp- to change conversations, it has to happen through so many fields and on so many levels. Yes. So that's where the idea of the messaging comes in. So so that's why if there's the book, Think of an Elephant. What do you think of? Obviously, the first thing that comes into your mind is the elephant. If you repeat that word, elephant, that's what's coming to mind. If you repeat the stereotypes, you're reinforcing all the neural pathways that put in their minds the image of who they think gets an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. When you bring up the stereotype, you're you're invoking that thought pattern and that imagery yet again. It is mm-hmm. so ingrained. It is as in the to use the term that's used now in the in the messaging and communications field it's really sticky and Mm -hmm. we cannot get it unstuck by just simply hammering at it we need to find another pathway of communication another kind of messaging to create uh, other images in another way for people to understand and relate to the problem of eating disorders completely i think it's it's much easier to create a new pathway than trying to raise an old one oh yeah it's, it's practically impossible. It's certainly impossible in the short term in terms of how neural networks work. We can't get rid of it in everybody's minds. We need to bypass it, come up with another pathway to give people a different image that motivates them to take action. So what do you know now that you wish you knew when you first started this kind of work? That's an easy one to answer. When I spent years and years in my training as a scientist and in the early years of my career producing the most rigorous research that I could. I learned all the methods to do that. I had great partners in the research to do this, the most rigorous research. And and this is all good and immensely valuable. What it was based on is the belief that if I could accrue and if my research partners could accrue enough evidence, the sheer force of that evidence is what would change the world or at least change the issue that we wanted to to see change, something that we cared about the most. So that's where I focus, just accrue as much rigorous research as we can. But then when I started working in the research to policy translation realm or started getting involved with policy advocacy, it was quite shocking for me to realize that this is not the case at all. 
um, what I realized is that I could dedicate my entire career, my colleagues could dedicate their entire careers, we could generate mountains and mountains of evidence about a public health problem, and all that data would not change anything. So that was a a real shock for me uh, about halfway through my career so far, maybe about 10 years ago, realizing that this there is something very different that's needed. And so what does change policies? It's stories. It's real life, human heartfelt stories that does this. What I learned is that evidence can inform policy, but stories will change policy. Stories are what will motivate action. That's actually true of policymakers, it's true of advocates, and it's true of scientists. We're people too. We respond to stories also. But what we do also have is the training to interpret evidence and to be able to inform policy so that we can have evidence-based policies. That's where all that mountain of research comes in. It's vital so that the policies that get acted on, the laws that change, are based in the evidence. But we need those stories and we need those partnerships to do that. So my take home and the, the way that I've focused my work since that realization is to work with communities, to work with people with lived experience and to work with policymakers so I understand what they need, what the pressures are on them. And it's when we can all work together I can bring in evidence, my fellow scientists, colleagues can bring in the evidence to inform the policy, but it's that it's the community members, it's the people with lived experience, it's the families, the parents talking with lawmakers who are going to reach them at their hearts and not just at their minds, reach them at their hearts and motivate them to take action. And the policymakers are going to take home with them that night the stories they heard about people's struggles, about people's triumphs, about people's needs. The stories are what they're going to remember the next night, the next day, the month later. It's not going to be all the data I present that they remember. And that's why it is crucial, and I've dedicated the rest of my career to this, is helping scientists work together with communities, with policymakers, to make the make sure that we're having the impact that we want to have, that we need to have to make uh, the world a better place for everyone to achieve health equity. That's so beautiful. I mean, and here, and like, I feel like that really embodies the essence of this podcast is what we've always tried to do is like, you know, combine those stories with the facts. And I think it's so... We're so lucky to have someone like you working on such a high level and doing Well, that. you all are I feel very grateful. doing it brilliantly. Your Your work is absolutely essential. Absolutely essential with the storytelling you're doing. You're doing it brilliantly. Thank you. <laughs> I've heard firsthand you are a mentor to so many, an inspiration, and to people that I'm inspired by, Nadia, i.e. So, you know, I... I'm obviously in awe of you, um, especially and in the field of eating disorders, you are, you know, you are such an inspiration. Can you tell us about the people that inspired you? Yeah, I, I've been blessed my whole career through my school years and my career with many, many mentors. And they're 
people who I've learned from sometimes who didn't see themselves as a mentor, they weren't officially in a mentor role, but it's somebody that I've learned from. Uh, and there are many people like that. In addition, I've had some formal mentors who've been wonderfully helpful and supportive. I think a, a key uh, really is to make sure to find the mentors where they are for different aspects of, of what you need. I, I don't know that I, I've ever had an individual who did everything I did or was an expert and everything that I did, um, that but that's not needed. They can be mentors in different ways. I think one one mentor I, that comes to mind to the, right now for this question uh, is, of course, the the incomparable Diane Newmark Steiner, um, and she was most definitely the person who inspired me and showed me early on that it is possible to be a public health professional which is what I am, I identify as a public health professional, public health researcher. That's how I did my schooling and where I see myself firmly. Diane was the person most definitely who inspired me and showed me early on that it's possible to be a public health professional and to dedicate your career to eating disorders prevention. She was the first person to bring those together in the field in general. I think she was probably the first person globally to be so out front as a leader, bringing the fields together. And without Diane as a leader and a role model, I'm not sure I would have even known that this was possible or had faith that I'd be able to chart a career in this this uh, whole line of research that now I've been doing for 20 years. Um, so I'm very grateful to Diane for being a mentor to me early on. That's incredible. And, and I actually didn't know that that link, Bryn, with you and Diane. I feel like I have to say this here and right now is that I didn't know that this work was possible until I met Bryn. So it was when I was back doing my master's and I remember, and I think Bryn, we have spoken about this, but I remember coming, finding you and I literally just emailed Bryn and said, can we meet please? And I went, crossed the river. So I was on the other campus, I crossed the river and just went and spoke to Bryn and just heard more about what she was doing. And I think because I had always thought about eating disorders in terms of treatment. So when people do eating disorder work, it's about treatment work. And I was very much like, I don't think I can do eating disorder treatment work. As someone who's had an eating disorder and, and, and been in that space for a long time, I was like, I just don't think I could do that. But prevention was just so exciting to me. And then so I met Bryn and then we did these two lobby days. And then I have like stuck to Bryn, <laughs> to Bryn <laughs> ever since. And that's how I then met Philippa because Bryn invited Philippa to do a talk at Harvard School of Public Health and then I was like wow we can do global body image work what I have to do this so I think that's how everything can just really come together in a really special and magical way and I think that's yeah it's just so nice to to be able to reflect on I think yeah, well, it's wonderful to hear that. And I remember that day way back when, Nadia, when you first came to my office, I could just see you sitting there across the table from me that first time we met. And I'm so glad you reached out because what a wonderful collaborations we've had since then. And it's been great to see your career grow. And now this this uh, brilliant podcast that you and Honey are doing now is such an important addition to the field. Yeah, that's amazing. And the, and the other thing that I've also told Honey is that whenever... I speak about you with other people who have worked with you. So especially early career researchers, we're always like, well, Bryn is looking after me. But so, and it kind of feels like it's a very personal thing. And then realizing that it's like, it's not just you, it's lots of other people. But it's, I think it's a real gift to let people feel like you're, I, I don't know how to describe it. 
But well, I mean, it's such yeah. a testament to your character that you make everyone you work with feel like you are their mm. personal mentor uh-huh. and spirit yeah, guide. That's I it. mean, that's that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you are a fairy godmother. Yeah. That's very powerful. Oh, well, that's, that's nice to hear. But it, it is personal in the sense that I do genuinely very much care and think about uh, everyone I work with and certainly Nadia, uh, all the many years that we've worked together too. That's been true. Well, I mean, it sounds like you give a lot to other people. I mean, and you give a lot to the world. You're a very special woman, clearly. How do you give back to yourself? How do you look after yourself? How do you recharge? I'm so glad you asked this question because I firmly believe that this is a crucial part of being able to craft a sustainable career in academic research or in working for health equity and social justice or many, many kinds of work. This is true that recharging is essential. And it's essential to being able to show up every day with the energy, the stamina, the creativity, and the compassion that we need to do this work and to do it in community for the long haul. So this is not a one-year career, five-year career. This is decades of work ahead of us that we need everyone to commit if we're going to solve these big problems we have. And I and I want to emphasize the compassion piece too, because it's not just stamina to work endless hours day after day or week after week. It's not just that. It's being able to show up and being compassionate with everyone you're working with, your colleagues you're working with, or your students if you're teaching, or your collaborators or the communities uh, who you need to be part of this mission together to make things better. So for recharging, what I, I, for me personally, I was always a big athlete growing up, played lots of sports, played uh, competitive soccer through college. It was all very, always very important to me then, but the kind of things you can do in terms of athletics or body movement change through life stages. And what has been really important for me in the last 20 years, and I expect going forward, are uh, my everyday practice of yoga and martial arts. And it's actually that combination that I especially love being able to do both of them. So I've practiced both for more than 20 years. And they have been essential for this period of the pandemic where we all uh, needed to stay as close to home as possible if you didn't have an essential kind of profession where you had to go out. Um, and that meant for everybody, it meant really t- major changes in what you could do and what's part of your everyday life. Well, because I've been practicing yoga and martial arts for 20 years, I can do them on my own. Thankfully, I had some space in the yard to be able to do this during the pandemic. And I find that the, both of these, what's great about them is the lifelong learning. So rather than watching myself lose the skills that I used to have as a Division One soccer player, I don't have to do that, which is a little depressing. But instead, I can keep learning and growing and have the, what I'm doing change as I get older, um, but still be something that can be very sustaining with the different kinds of yoga I do in the martial arts. That's yeah, that's so beautiful. There's a real longevity to both of those mm-hmm. things. And those those crafts and practices really grow with you as you grow. Yes, they do. They're 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 fun too. It's fun to do. And it makes watching yeah. martial arts <laughs> films really fun when I know what all they're doing. I have to slow it down and see, oh I know that move. We did that in class. It, <laughs> 
I know. <laughs> it makes it, it makes it very fun. I also, of course, find my relationship with my wife very sustaining. And this time, again, during the pandemic, everybody's lives changed so much. And ours did, too, where we are spending really all of our time together. And, and that's been a gift. That's been a silver lining gift that we could be together. We cook together. We watch movies together. We do so much together all the time now. And I'm so grateful for all the ways that she's blessed my life. Uh, my wife, Liz, has just been a real rock and a center through everything that we've gone through. That's amazing. Liz is such good fun as well. I'm very pleased that I've got to meet her a couple of times over the years. And I can, yeah, just so nice to for her to get a mention on the podcast feels feels lovely <laughs> Bryn it's been such a delight to have you on the podcast for people who want to follow what you're doing what Harvard Striped are doing can you give us some signposts yes at Harvard Striped we have a lot going on for those of you who want to join a advocacy day that is virtual mm-hmm which means you could be joining from any country, actually, but certainly folks in the United States uh, who want to join our Capitol Hill Virtual Advocacy Day, working with the Eating Disorders Coalition, that'll be May 6th. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all day, but it's on and off. So you won't actually be on Zoom the whole day. You'll be on and off with meetings, meeting with members of Congress, their staff, to talk about eating disorders and to advocate for legislation that we have moving through Congress right now. Uh, we're focused on the Eating Disorders Coalition and Striped work closely together. The the bill in Congress we're focusing on right now is to expand uh, federal Medicare coverage for people with eating disorders to include nutrition mm-hmm. care. Right now, uh, people who receive public insurance in the United States through Medicare can get some kinds, some aspects of their eating disorder treated, but not nutrition care. Mm-hmm. Even though there's care for if someone has diabetes, if someone has other kinds of conditions and needs nutrition care, and they have Medicare, they're covered. Eating disorders, it's arbitrary. It's a, it's a, it's capricious and cruel to not cover the the vital nutrition care. Mm-hmm. So May six, join us, and we'll be able to talk to members of Congress and their staff about how important that is. We just published the Striped Advocacy Playbook, which is a a free open access resource on our website to give people the tools, the step-by-step on how to move forward on advocacy campaigns for eating disorders prevention and to promote body confidence. Uh, In their own city, their own state, it tells you how to do it. And we're providing support for advocates, uh, working with advocates all over the country now. Awesome. And you're on Instagram and Twitter and there's a YouTube channel and yes, there's a website. Yeah, we've got all that. And we we post our seminars uh, on whether YouTube channel or through our website. We've got a course right now. It's a brief online course for primary care providers in how to identify and refer for eating disorders. So those can be shared with any primary care providers that the listeners know to help them get a, a quick uh, one-hour training plus some additional training so they can do a better job too. That's on our website and lots more. That's amazing. You just give so much and just we're so, so grateful that you joined us on the podcast. Um, wow, I am absolutely buzzing after that, after speaking to Bryn. What a woman. I know. Thank you, Nadia, for bringing her into our lives. Wow. I know. I feel so overcome because I think she's so special to me. I think she's so incredible. She inspires me in so many ways. And 
every conversation I have with her. So like this one we have just had, I feel like I have, my mind has been blown all over again. Like I've learned something new, something has really, I feel like I'm going to have to go, go away and process and, and think about this conversation so much. Um, but just a couple of things that I think just to really underscore what she was saying, because we covered so many different things, but the fact from what she said right at the beginning that eating disorders are preventable and they are treatable I think that's so important to for anyone who's affected by an eating disorder right now that they are treatable you can get better I think that's something to hold on to because I think especially when you present all the data about how much they cost how deadly they are how common they are I think it becomes quite you can get to this point of despair and I always like to have that counterpoint of hope like you can get better and you can recover that kind of interestingly leads into what we wanted to talk about, which is, I mean, you are a, an example of that. Yeah. You can get better. You can get to the other side. And it's interesting talking about, like, the stories and how they help people understand, but the personal cost that comes at and why, you know, you haven't necessarily wanted to put yourself forward in that way yet. Well, do you remember, honey, when Scarlett asked about the blue book the writing for the blue book and how Mm. I was so angsty about that and I was like do I do it I want to do it but what should I write what's a way of doing this is this gonna undermine my professional credibility etc etc it was like a huge thing to do but then I hear Bryn saying something like that and I'm like I should just quit the research and just do you know to make an impact but you know I'm really happy in the work that I'm doing it feels really important so it's not that I'm I'm being glib in terms of saying quit the research no of course um, not but like it's but this is what I think it's so I mean affirming for us of and especially for me as someone who has been a person who has been a story for sure Mm. that has helped people understand certain things it's like it is kind of horrible being that person one Mm. it's exhausting and everyone thinks they know you and everybody thinks they knows you they know your business and have a right to your business but it's the power of when people like us come together and we're able to tell our stories as well as grounding it in fact I think Mm. it's like that's when the magic happens that's you know essentially what Bryn said it's the truth yeah people relate to stories right that's what moves people to be like oh this is what's important and this is what we need to capture and do and actually this also goes back to when I first met Bryn I was very different physically to what you see now so and then just thinking about that that so that year during my master's was quite a transformational point of my recovery and I think we've spoken about this before but I remember asking her like am I going to be okay in this space like doing this kind of work am I going to be useful because if I'm going to be useful I really this is what I really want to do but I don't know how I can be and I think that's pretty much what we met about in that first meeting I was like can I be useful in this space tell me more about what you're doing I want to find out as I said in when we were talking with her I was like there's no way I can do the treatment side of things because as someone who went through 10 years of treatment I know that I wouldn't I would struggle too much personally with that but to understand the prevention side of things and knowing the value of prevention and just kind of wishing that perhaps because I think eating disorders become very habitual or definitely in my experience it was very habitual so then once a pattern of behavior has taken hold to break out of that is really difficult and you become very stuck very well I became very stuck very quickly and then once I was stuck I was stuck and then it was like digging a hole you know when you dig a hole for yourself and you just get deeper and deeper and then to get out becomes almost impossible and then the struggle to get to actually get out so then and I'm completely rambling 
But no, no, you're not. And I think it's no. I, I completely hear what you're saying. Mm. And also, it's once you are stuck in that spiral, essentially, it feels impossible to mm. get out. But it's not, and that's what's so amazing is that you can overcome that. Yeah, you can overcome that and that you can also be youthful if you want to be. And I think that's something else that I think is important is that just because you've recovered from an eating disorder, you do not need to make that your life's mission to to work with eating disorders. Like I want people who have recovered from an eating disorder to go out and do lots of different things and thrive in their own right, in their own way. And I remember someone who's been really inspiring to me in terms of recovery is Hadley Freeman, um, so a Guardian journalist, because she's like, She's written about eating disorders a couple of times, but her career is her writing. Um, And so it's not something that still continues to define her. And I think that's in its own right and just using her as an example, but as something that I think is really powerful. So, Well, seeing that you can experience this and then go on to have a full, wonderful life in whatever career you choose. Like it's not going to, it's preventable treatable and not only that you can live as fully as you maybe thought you couldn't yeah it doesn't have to define you and I think the thing when you have an eating disorder it defines you it can define you so much right certainly for me I was like all I was was anorexic like there wasn't anything else but yeah you can be something completely different and more also thinking about how we do this kind of thing and combining the storytelling and science well I mean it's amazing that she is kind of she is doing our dream on that scale. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, and it makes me, I'm so grateful that people like her are out there doing this work. And like, and collaborating, right? I think she really models collaborations, right? So she doesn't, it's not like she doesn't, she's certainly not someone who's like, I have to do everything on my own and this no. is it. So just like the collaboration with Jamila Jamil, the collaboration with Ai Wei, the collaboration with the big eating disorder organisation, so the Academy for Eating Disorders, the Eating Disorder Coalition, she's incredible at pulling people together to fight a common cause. And I think that goes back to the thing about where there are so many people that are like, Bryn's looking out for me. She, I think she fosters that and nurtures that. So there are going to be so many people fighting a common cause. Because I think she just has vision. I think that's... Oh, and also she's got compassion out the wazoo. Like, she's looking after everybody. And it's so impressive. Like, to be in academia and to maintain that level of empathy and compassion is so... I mean, I see it in you. And it's rare and it's special. And it's, you know, when you see that, you're like, oh, you are the good in the world. Thank the sweet lord for Mm. people like you in Britain. I mean, I I feel like it's a disservice to Britain to lump me in there. But I think... um, Ah, she not not in this house no no uh, well thank you but I think don't talk about my best friend like that hey you know but I think she is she is something special and obviously uh has been doing this for many many years so just in recognition of that but I mean we could keep talking for hours and hours about how wonderful she is and (laughs) all of the things like I feel like every conversation I've had with her as I've said at the beginning I've taken something else away and feel empowered and enriched to go on and do something else no and I feel like we after this episode I have a lot to think about and I hope that the people listening do too I think you know if this didn't change the way you think about eating disorders I don't know what will (laughs) thank you for listening to the body protest we really hope you've enjoyed this episode and it would mean the world to us if you could subscribe rate and review you can follow Honey on Instagram at Honey Kinney. And you can follow Nadia at Nadia.craddock.
This podcast is produced and edited by the glorious Daisy Grant. And it's brought to you by the Pink Protest Podcast Network. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.